Well, I can't think of a more appropriate song for us to have sung in preparation for tonight's message. And uh, I want to welcome you back to Christ's School of Prayer. And uh, tonight we're going to dive into our crash course on the Lord's Prayer for the purpose of learning how to talk to God like Jesus did. Does that sound cool or what? Learning how to talk to God like Jesus did. And uh, there's two places you can find the Lord's Prayer in the, the New Testament. One is found in Luke chapter 11, and the other is found in Matthew chapter 6. And we're, uh, we've chosen uh, Matthew chapter 6 uh, to be uh, our text for this series. And so you can take your Bibles and turn there this evening, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse... Nine. Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this model prayer that you gave us for our instruction so that we would know how to approach you in prayer. You didn't want us to be left to pray hypocritically or mechanically, but you wanted us to pray personally and intimately with you, our Heavenly Father. And so as we consider this opening phrase tonight of, of uh, the Lord's Prayer, I ask that you would draw us into greater intimacy with you through Christ. And Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here tonight who has yet to be born again, who is not a member of your family who cannot claim this prayer for their own yet because you're not their father through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that tonight your spirit would convict them and grant them repentance and faith that they might know the joy of being one of your true children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important practices that every Christian must learn is how to pray. And there's no one better to teach us or to learn from than Jesus Christ himself. He is the master of prayer. Jesus' public life and ministry were fueled and empowered by his private prayer life. And as we mentioned last week, and Christ continues his ministry of prayer Uh, in his ministry of intercession for all the saints, seated at the right hand of God for all eternity. Those who were closest to Christ during his time here on earth were challenged. They were convicted by the frequency and the fervency of his prayers. And we looked uh, the last couple of weeks in Luke 11, how Luke recorded that one time after listening to Jesus pray, his disciples finally asked him to teach them how to pray like he did. In other words, we don't know how to pray like you pray. Would you teach us? And in response to their request, Jesus provided them with a very simple, short, but profound prayer. 
And we know it today as the Lord's Prayer. And while this is easily the most well-known prayer of all time, what many people don't seem to know is that the Lord's Prayer was mainly given not to be memorized, but to be mimicked. Think with me about that. This prayer that I just read for you, that we read together, was not intended primarily to be memorized and recited, but to be mimicked. In other words, to be, to be copied, to be uh, expanded upon. And we know that because of what it says in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. The disciples didn't ask Jesus to tell them what to pray, but he said, teach us how to pray. And then here in our text in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it says, pray then in this way. He doesn't say pray this. He said, pray in this way, in, like this. And so Jesus originally intended this prayer to serve as a model, as a guide, as a pattern for us to follow when we pray. It's really a sample prayer. Or as I would like you to think about it with me this evening, as a primer for prayer. Now, you're probably familiar with that, that term primer. Uh, there's a couple different meanings in the English language for the word primer, uh, but there's two particular meanings that I want to focus in on uh, for a moment. The first meaning of primer is that elementary textbook that serves as an introduction to a subject of study or is used for teaching children to read. So we know about a primer, like a, a reading primer, uh, designed to teach children how to read. Uh, The other meaning uh, of primer is a cap or cylinder containing a compound that responds to an electrical impulse and ignites the charge in a cartridge or explosive. So those of you that are homeschooling or those of you that uh, are teachers, you you get the first one, the the primer, right? A primer for the English language or a primer for reading. Those of you that are mechanics, right, that you like to tinker around in the garage and your engine, you you get the whole primer uh, as far as uh, uh, something igniting the charge in a cartridge or explosive. And so by a primer for prayer, I mean that the Lord's Prayer was intended both to ignite a passion in our hearts to pray and impart a pattern in our minds to show us how to pray. So it really has a twofold purpose, to ignite a passion in our own hearts to pray, and at the same time, imparting a pattern in our minds to show us how to pray. And so rather than viewing this prayer as, as, uh, as, as simply an eloquent prayer to recite verbatim, right, that we come to church and we say it every Sunday kind of by rote, We should consider the Lord's Prayer as more of an outline to stir and to shape our prayers. Now, again, I don't think it's wrong uh, to to recite the Lord's Prayer. It wouldn't be wrong for a church to have that as part of their liturgy or part of their uh, normal worship, as long as they're being careful that it doesn't become uh, what Jesus uh, warned about was that hypocritical, uh, meaningless repetition uh, that we shouldn't pray. And unfortunately, too many churches have allowed the Lord's Prayer to become just that, something that they say without ever thinking about what they're saying, and it's lost its meaning altogether. And, and, and ultimately, it's lost its ultimate purpose, because the people who recite it every week, they may recite it every week, but they have no idea that there was so much more intended in the mind of Christ when he gave this prayer than just as something for us to, to pray every Sunday. 
And so as we look at this Lord's Prayer, I want you to see that it contains the basic elements, really all the basic elements, that should be included in our prayers, the proper priorities, the proper perspectives, the proper petitions. Um, For instance, as far as priorities are concerned, if you notice, the first half of the prayer focuses on who? God and His glory. And only when we get to verse 11 do we see an emphasis on our personal needs, man's needs. And so, again, just from that, that, that just overview of the, of the Lord's Prayer, you can, you can find the, the priority that God intends for us when we pray, that we, we think and we address uh, His glory and His program and His plans and His will before we ever address any of ours. And so, if we follow this general outline... Whenever we approach the Lord in prayer, it will keep us from rambling on and on and on or from requesting things that are not according to His will. And so when our prayers line up with the Lord's Prayer, we can be confident that we have said all that needs to be said and that our prayers are acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. I mean, how do you know if you've said everything that needs to be said in prayer? How do you know if your prayers are pleasing to the Lord, that the Lord looks down and smiles upon you when you're on your knees or you're in your secret place uh, crying out to the Lord? How do you know He's pleased? Well, it's very simple. Just look at your prayers, the prayers that you pray, and see if they line up, they match this model, or they follow this pattern. Now, if you remember from last week, Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's prayer was preceded by a warning that Jesus gave about the the two kinds of prayers that are not pleasing to the Lord. What were they? I already mentioned them. The first one was hypocritical prayers, right? Which is in verse 5. He says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he's warning us not to to show off when we pray, not to use public prayer as an opportunity to show off. But we should go off into all alone with the Lord in a a closet somewhere, in a private place, and, and pray. Again, by the way, that doesn't mean we should never pray in public. Because, again, we're going to learn here in just a moment, the very first thing that Jesus taught us to pray was our Father. Our Father. This wasn't my Father, something that you'd go away in your closet and say, my Father. This was our Father. And so that's just a good reminder that it is appropriate for us to to pray in a group setting like this at times. And in fact, we can learn from one another as to how to pray. And sometimes we listen to other people pray and we learn how to pray from listening to them pray. And our, and our hearts are encouraged and, and built up. Somebody asked me a very uh, appropriate question that, that is it ever appropriate for, uh, for someone's prayers to benefit someone else? In other words, our prayers are not just for the benefit of God. They oftentimes benefit others. They encourage one another. And I think that's so true in James chapter 5. A great example is when someone's sick, either physically or spiritually, they're to call the elders, and the elders are to what? Pray for them and to be an encouragement to them and pray for their healing, both physically and or spiritually. And so uh, we need to make sure that we don't miss out on the fact that 
while we don't pray for those around us, we pray to God. God uses our prayers to be an encouragement, to be a comfort, to bring conviction to those around us when we do so. And so he says, first of all, you need to avoid hypocritical prayers, but then you also have to avoid mechanical prayers. Verse 7, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And so again, avoiding, avoid meaningless, mechanical, mindless prayers. And so we come now to verse 9, and notice how the Lord's Prayer comes right on the heels of these two warnings, really as a corrective to the wrong patterns of prayer being practiced at the time of Christ. And, and I would say this, that the Lord's Prayer serves as a corrective to a lot of the wrong praying that's being done in the church today, and maybe even in this church, maybe in, in, in our lives, in our prayer lives, that hypocritical, we could be guilty of that hypocrit- hypocritical praying. Praying for everyone else and, and not even thinking about who we're talking to. Or, or maybe we're, 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 we're into that meaningless repetition where we're saying these same things over and over again. Every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, every time we put a kid to bed, it's the same thing, right? Well, the Lord's Prayer serves as a corrective to falling into the, the, the trap or the pit, if you will, of, of false methods of prayer that are not only displeasing to the Lord, but they're very ineffective for us. And so before we dive in here to this first phrase, I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view of the Lord's Prayer. I want to give you an overview, kind of a flyover here, just so you can kind of get the big picture. And this is very, very important for me to get the big picture. In fact, Rusty's got some outlines. If somebody could grab uh, some of those and help Rusty hand those out. I I want you to, thank you, Jeff, you already got one. Uh, I want everybody to have one of these, and, and you know that uh, whenever we start a series here at Lakeside, I, I always try to provide you with some kind of outline, and, and this is really more for my benefit, uh, that it just forces me to think deeply about uh, a passage or, or, a, or a book uh, or, or, or a subject uh, to make sure that, that I'm seeing it as clearly uh, and presenting it as creatively as I can possibly do that, uh, hopefully in a way that is very memorable and uh, maybe easy to uh, remember because of the way it's outlined. And so what I've done here is I've just outlined the series that I'd like to uh, continue. I've already started, and you can see we're already kind of two sermons into it. But uh, I want you to see what we're, where we've been and where we're going the first message two weeks ago was, why pray? And that's when we talked about the reason why we should pray is because Jesus prayed. He felt the need to pray, and he made the time to pray. He had the desire to pray, and he was disciplined to pray. We need to do the same thing. And we added last week that Jesus is still praying. And so why should we pray? Well, because Jesus has modeled for us and continues to model for us a life of passionate prayer. And then last week, we answered the question, how not to pray? And we just covered that in review. Don't pray hypocritically. Don't pray mechanically. And now we're moving into uh, the largest section here, which will be the remainder of our series, and that is how to pray. How to pray. And uh, notice I've just taken each one of the phrases um, 
really, uh, of the Lord's Prayer, the clause, and, and, and given it its own standalone message and, and, and title. So you see all of them, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And so I've, I've broken these things up into, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight separate categories or sermons but really because they really highlight a specific aspect of God. And I want you to notice every part of this prayer, of the Lord's Prayer, has to do with the, either the, an attribute or an action of God. And again, this is a very God-focused prayer. And, and so we see every one of these requests, every one of these uh, phrases or clauses in the Lord's Prayer focuses in on, again, either an attribute or an action of God. And so tonight we're looking at how we access God's presence. That is our Father who's in heaven. Then we're going to see, Hallowed be your name, which is revering God's person. And then thirdly, we're going to see pleading for God's program. That's an inherent in your kingdom come. And then we're going to see submitting to God's plans and purposes, which is inherited in your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we come to give us this day our daily bread, which is depending on God's provision. And then forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, seeking God's pardon. And then do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil is requesting God's protection. And then finally, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That is praising God's preeminence, that he is above all. All. He is unmatched. There was no one like him. And so over the next three months, I just want to unpack each one of these phrases one at a time so we can understand and apply the basic principles and implications that should guide and direct us when we pray. And so I want to encourage you to keep this uh, maybe in, the, in, in your Bible folded up in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew right here in Matthew chapter 6, or you can put it in the front of your Bible, your notebook, but uh, bring this back every week just to reference. But this is the pattern uh, or, or, the, or the, the outline that we're going to follow. And again, after thinking about it and praying about it uh, for, for a number of hours, I, I believe this is a very faithful rendition of what the Lord was desiring to accomplish uh, in our hearts and on our lives in teaching us uh, the Lord's Prayer. So again, very simply, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm lost anybody in this process, you want to know what to include in your prayers, there you go. You've got eight basic things to include in your prayers. And uh, over the next uh, eight weeks or so, as we hit each one of these things, we're going to add a different element to our prayer lives. And so every time we go before the Lord in prayer, uh, these are the types of things that should be, that we should be praying about. And hopefully that, that's clear and it'll become clear as we, as we go on. But tonight, we're going to just look at this first phrase, our Father who is in heaven. And let me begin by reading for you just a profound statement from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God, a book we just read, I think, last year or a couple years ago in our Ironman. Packer says this, quote, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, 
But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. It's a great, great statement and, and one of the, 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 the most well-known statements about God's fatherhood is found here at the opening phrase of the Lord's Prayer. He says, our Father." Who is in heaven. Now, again, that word our is is an important word. We can't just breeze over it. This is a this is clearly a family prayer. The only ones who can who, who have access to God's presence are those who have been born again into God's family through faith in his son Jesus Christ. And this is a prayer that's shared with other members of the body of Christ, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are part of the family of God. So the question is, can you honestly address God, approach God by calling him or being included in this phrase, our father? Is he your father? Is God your father? See, there's a lot of people uh, in our world, well-meaning people, mind you, who assume that at birth they're automatically born into the family of God. That's just a very common belief, that, that, that if you ask the average person out there in the world and says, hey, is God your father? They would say, yes. And you may have even been, there may be somebody here sitting here tonight, and I said, hey, can you call God your father? And you're like, yeah, of course I can. I'm a, I'm a creature, aren't I? I'm on this planet. I'm a God's earth. I'm his child. Well, not necessarily. See, the Pharisees thought that because they had been born into the family of Abraham that that, that, that naturally made them God's children. And what did Jesus have to say to them? He confronted their hypocritical presumption when he said, you are of your father, who? The devil. Look over quickly at 1 John chapter 3. And I want you to see a very challenging passage of Scripture that helps us determine whether or not we're a child of God or a child of the devil. Because every human being is either a member of God's family or Satan's family. Everyone in here tonight, this room tonight, is either part of God's family or Satan's family. And if you want to know which family you're a part of, then you've got to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children... Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
And so there's a word here that's used four times in these verses. Did you see what it is? The word what? Practice. Practice means doing something what? Over and over and over and over and over again. And so his point is very simple. How do you know whether you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan? Well, do you see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? In other words, do you, are you seeing yourself sin less and less? Now, this is kind of a, a catch-22. It's kind of a paradox because the closer you come to the Lord uh, in your walk with Christ, the more sinful you feel like you are. So sometimes you, you think, well, I don't know. I feel like I'm sinning even more than I used to sin. And that may just simply because you're getting closer to the bright glow of God's glory and His holiness, and He's exposing more of your sin. But I'm talking about being honest and saying, okay, are are there patterns, sinful habit patterns in my life where I just do these things over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and there is no growth, there's no conviction, uh, my conscience isn't guilty about those things, I'm making no effort to progress in those things, to to put off those things and put on those things, I just kind of keep doing this and I'm fine with it. In other words, don't say you're a Christian if you are living in an habitual pattern of sin. And so you have to decide, are you a child of God or are you a child of Satan? And, and, and you'll know by your fruit, the Bible says. And so it's important that we understand that just being born on this planet isn't enough to make you a child of God. You must be born what? Again. You must be born spiritually. John 3 says, unless you're born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you've not been born again, the Bible says that you are still a child of Satan. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will become a child of God. John 1.12 says this, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so the only people who can truly pray the Lord's Prayer, or or I would just say pray to God as their Father, and expect to receive an answer to their prayers, are those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, by faith, believing that He suffered and died on the cross so that they as a sinner could have access to God's holy presence. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but what? Through me. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, John 15, verse 16, we see how Jesus emphasized there was no way to get to God but through him. John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And then in chapter 16, verse 23, it says, in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be made full. He says in verse 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, 
For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from the Father. In other words, unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you got no relationship with the Father. The only way you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ or with God is through his son, Jesus Christ. You can't have direct access to God apart from Christ. And we mentioned that last week how, and how it's shocking to think and almost it sounds so harsh to say, but all these people that we see who are so devoted to prayer externally, different religions who, who openly practice their prayer lives in different pictures we've seen and on their mats and in front of their walls, and, 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 and guess what? They're not having any access to God because they reject Christ. And so while they look like they're, they're, they're going after it in prayer and having some, some intimate conversation with God, they're not. Because they're not coming to God in the name of Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting. I read that the early church forbid non-Christians from reciting the Lord's Prayer in the same way that they, they would forbid them from taking communion. You know how on Sundays when we have Communion Sunday, and I always make sure I tell the people who are there, to all of us, I remind, especially the visitors, you know, if they're, if they're visiting with us and they're not a believer, that they, they shouldn't take communion or they'll bring judgment upon themselves, right? Well, the early church did the same thing when it came to the Lord's Prayer. When it came time to, to saying the Lord's Prayer, which apparently they, they, that was part of their liturgy, liturgy, they would say, okay, time out, everybody. If you're not a Christian, don't follow along, don't, don't recite this prayer with us. You just stand there and be quiet. Because this is only for Christians. This is our Father. And they didn't want to have some, some non believer thinking that they were saved when they really weren't, or bringing judgment upon themselves for talking, out, t- talking to God in a way that was inappropriate. But I bring all that up because it's verses like this here in Matthew chapter 6 our Father. That, that has led people to wrongly believe in the universal fatherhood of God. It's also, you may, may have heard it um, with the term universalism. You ever heard of that term, universalism? Which basically is the belief that God is the father of everyone, that we're all God's children, and therefore we'll all go to heaven someday. We are the world, right? It's the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God. We're all together, you know, as common a common race. Well, granted, as, as, as the creator, God is the father of all mankind. Acts 17, 28 talks about how in him we live and move and exist and we are his offspring. But as savior, God is the father of only those who he has chosen to adopt as his own through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what, what was unique about, about Jesus is when Jesus prayed, Father, I mean, he was really talking to his Father. I mean, literally, talking to his Father. Because he was God's Son, right? And yet, this is the cool thing, all of us who believe in Christ and whose sins are covered by his blood on the cross are adopted by God and become co-heirs with Christ and can come alongside Christ in praying our Father. In other words, we're, we're praying with our big brother, if you will. And I don't think that's sacrilegious to call Jesus our big brother. He, he is. He's the one that's gone before us. 
And we are co-heirs with Christ, the Scripture says. And so Christ invites us as his followers to pray with the same authority and with the same intimacy with his Father. And he was telling the disciples, hey guys, I want you to pray our Father too. You hear me say Father all the time. I want you to pray it too. Now think about it. Here's Jesus starting off this prayer with our Father. Now he could have started with anything. Almighty God, majestic Lord, our sovereign King, our glorious Maker, our powerful Protector, our gracious and generous Provider, or our righteous Judge. I mean, yeah, He had all those titles and and attributes that He could have chosen from. And yet He chose... Our Father. In fact, Jesus referred to God as Father 66 times in the gospel, 17 here in the Sermon on the Mount, 10 of those times here in the immediate context of prayer in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I mean, you just see it. Father, 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 Father. In fact, there was a, there was a, a German theologian who, who did extensive research on Jesus' prayers And what he discovered is that every time Jesus prayed in the Gospels, he addressed God as Father except for once. All the prayers that Jesus ever prayed, save one, he addressed God as Father. And how profound that that one time that he didn't call God his Father was when he cried out from the cross my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which was obviously to emphasize that when he was made sin on our behalf, his relationship with the Father was momentarily severed. He was momentarily separated from God. But it was only momentary because before he died, remember the last thing that came out of his mouth was again, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So that time of separation was only on the cross. And he was able to to die restored to intimacy with his father. Now, we read our father who is in heaven, who art in heaven, and and it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. It's no big deal. We've heard it so many times before. But you need to understand when when the disciples heard Jesus address God as Father. And then when he went on to tell them to address God as Father, this was shocking. This was not the customary way that they addressed God. In fact, research, the same guy who researched uh, all the times that Jesus prayed, he also researched the Old Testament and he found that, that no one before Jesus ever addressed God as Father. I mean, you say, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament, God was likened uh, by, the, by way of analogy as a father to the nation of Israel. You're familiar with that. But no Old Testament Jew would ever dare personally address God as their father. 
It was more of this distant relationship. God's our father. We're the son. We're the child. But there was, they, they never thought it was personal. In fact, the Jewish religious leaders taught the people that God was this awesome and majestic God who was so transcendent and so far off in the heavenlies. And, and he, was, he was behind a veil. He was uh, in, in inapproachable light. He was a consuming fire. So nobody was even going to think, they wouldn't even cross their mind to, to address this, this great and awesome God as Father. I mean, they wouldn't even bring themselves to write his name on a scroll, let alone speak it. They wouldn't even speak the name Yahweh. And when they would write it, they would leave out some of the letters as not to bring judgment upon themselves because they revered the name of God so much. And so when Jesus addressed God as Father, I mean, it must have stunned the disciples. They're like, did did you hear that? Are you getting this? Can you... This is unbelievable. I mean, they had never heard anyone ever claim that kind of intimate access to the holy God of the universe. I mean, this was totally new, totally original. This was revolutionary. I mean, it was so revolutionary, it was so radical that Christ's enemies eventually killed him for it. For calling God his father and making himself out to be God's son, which was tantamount to claiming to be God. And we see that very clearly in John chapter 5, verse 18, to just show you how, how radical this was. In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then later on in John 10, verse 30, a very similar exchange with the Pharisees. And Jesus said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And immediately the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so this sounded too familiar, this sounded too irreverent, this was way too presumptuous. In fact, this was outright blasphemous to call God your father. And yet Jesus was simply expressing the the close personal relationship that he had with his father. It was no big deal to Jesus. I mean, this this is who I am, I'm God's son. That's how a son talks to his dad. In fact, he didn't just use the, the normal Greek word for father. As you know, he was, he was uh, while the, the New Testament was written in Greek, Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic. And so he used the Aramaic word Abba, which was the, the, the word that a small child would use to address their, their father in those days. So it, was, it would be like our daddy. It was probably the term that Jesus used to, to, to address Joseph as he grew up in the carpenter shop. Abba. By the way, that's the main idea behind this, this title slide. Why, why a little kid, right? It, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Every time Jesus 
talk to God, it was already always father. A, a child to a daddy. In fact, that's how he addressed God in the most intense moment of prayer that he ever experienced in Mark chapter 14 in the garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. It says, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He was crying out as a child to his daddy, Daddy, please know if there's any other way than for me to have to, to die on a cross. And again, Jesus was, if that wasn't radical enough, Jesus was telling his disciples, hey guys, I want you to talk to God in the same way as I do. I want you to know and experience that, that close, personal intimacy that I enjoy with my Father. And in fact, the, the, the apostles picked up on that. Paul in particular, in Romans chapter 8 Verse 15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so because we've been adopted, Paul says, as, as, as God's sons and, and daughters, we can cry out to him, Daddy. Galatians chapter 4 Verse 5, another, the other reference in the New Testament outside the Gospels to this, this is the word Abba, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so once we're adopted by God through faith in his son, the spirit enables us to call the God of the universe, daddy. How cool is that? R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, quote, every time we open our mouths and say our father, we should be reminded of our adoption that we have been grafted into Christ and have been placed in this intimate relationship with God, a relationship that we do not ha did not have by nature. It is a relationship that has been won for us by the perfect obedience of the Son who received the inheritance that was promised to him from the foundation of the world, which inheritance, which inheritance he shares with his brothers and sisters who are in him. That's us that Christ shares his inheritance with us. And so Jesus said, I want you to pray. When you pray, I want you to pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. That phrase, our Father who is in heaven, used 22 times in Matthew alone. But I think the idea here is that whenever we go to God in prayer, it's as if we're entering into his abode in heaven, which will one day be our abode. 
And we're essentially saying, hey, Daddy, I miss you. And I can't wait to, to, to spend the rest of eternity with you. And I'm just coming up to see how you're doing and, and ask you a few things and ask you for help until I get there. And so every time we pray, we are directing our hearts towards our eternal home. Talk about a, a simple way to be more heavenly-minded, right? To, to, to let, set your mind on things above is to pray. It's the best way to, to not allow your mind to be focused on the things of this earth, but to set your mind on things above. And to have your heart in heaven is to spend tons of time in prayer. And the more time you spend in prayer in your future heavenly abode, if you will, in the heavenlies with God, the less likely you're going to be, you're going to forget that you're an alien and stranger here, right? And this is just a temporary thing. But what, what really is going on here when he, when he says, our Father who's in heaven? I appreciate what John Stott said. He said, those, those words denote not the place of his, bow, of his abode so much as the authority and the power at his command as creator and ruler of all things. Thus, he combines fatherly love with heavenly power, and what his love directs, his power is able to perform. In other words, it's, 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 it's great to know that we have a, a, a father, but we don't just have a, a father. We have a father who's in heaven. We have a heavenly father. And, and with that comes not just love, but with that comes power and with authority because there's no father higher than that. And so it should cause us to come before him with, with not a, a, a flippant, hey, dad, how's it going? Attitude. We have to be careful that we don't swing too far in our intimacy with the Lord where we, we are flippant with him. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, talks about the reverence that we should have when we come into the presence of God. Even though he is our father, our daddy, it says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. And so we need to make sure we maintain a, a, an attitude of reverence. We're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about hallowed be your name. But, but this should also give us great confidence. Great confidence. We're, we're coming to the God of heaven. And notice just in the context, in Matthew chapter 6, you're there, verse 32, just, just the, later on in that same chapter, notice he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And again, that's in the context of don't be anxious for anything, don't worry about anything, right? Uh, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Listen, don't worry about what to eat, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry about where you're going to live. God knows you need all those things, and he's going to provide for you. And guess what? He has, he has a, an infinite storehouse of resources in heaven just waiting for you to ask. And then even in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 7, this is the confidence with which we can come to the Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. 
He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And and we all can relate to this if, if you're a father, right? I don't know of any father in here, who if your son came to you and said, hey, dad, I, I'm hungry. Can I, have a, can I have a piece of toast? And you're like, sure. And so you go outside and you, you dig up a rock and, and you walk in and say, there you go, buddy. There's your piece of toast. Gnaw on that for a little bit. Right? We wouldn't do that, right? We would say, sure, buddy, let me get that toast. I'll pop it in there. Let me butter it up for you. Is that big enough? You want another one? Or if he asks for a, a fish... Something, again, something to eat, then, then here, here's your, and we bring it out on this, on this platter, and we, here's, your, here's your fish, and all of a sudden we pull the cover off, and there's a snake that comes slithering out and, and, and goes after him and tries to bite him. I mean, we wouldn't do that. That'd be ridiculous. What father would do that to their son? I would give him a fish. Hey, what else you want? Want, want some more fish? How about a hamburger? How about some pasta? How about, right? We want to give. We want to give. Listen, if you're an evil, you're evil. All of us are evil dads. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Father who's in heaven will give what is good to those who ask him? And so here we have the opening line of the Lord's Prayer. And, and basically what it does here, I think what Jesus was doing here was establishing, first of all, the means of approaching God, and secondly, the mindset that we should have when we approach God. Here we have the means of approaching God and the mindset that we should have when we approach God. And one writer said it this way, he said, quote, by teaching his disciples to pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven... Jesus was authorizing them to share his sonship, to relate to the sovereign God of the universe with the intimacy of a child climbing up on his daddy's lap, throwing his arms around his neck and telling him, I love you. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, do you, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that when you're, when you're about to, to go before the Lord in prayer? That you're like this little kid climbing up into your father's lap. I think that's how God wants us to relate to him when we pray. That we should imagine ourselves as this little kid joyfully and, 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 and confidently climbing up in the lap of our loving, caring, patient, gracious father who's glad to see us. Aren't you glad to see your kids when they come in from wherever? And you can't wait to hear what they have to tell you, and, and, they, and you want to grant them their requests. Now, I know some of you may, may have a hard time with this whole Our Father concept, because you know what? You, had, you didn't have a good dad. 
you, you had a distant dad or a distracted dad who never spent any time with you, or maybe you had a deadbeat dad who just wasn't even there. Some of you had an abusive dad who, who, who hurts you physically and, and emotionally, and some of you may, may not even know your dad. And so if you, if you have no relationship with your dad or you have a bad relationship with your earthly father, listen, you may have a hard time relating to this concept of a loving, gracious, heavenly father. But listen, it doesn't matter what your earthly dad is like. You got a heavenly father. You got a heavenly father, and according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, listen to what this says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Amazing. Andrew Murray, who, who wrote that classic book with Christ in the School of Prayer, he said this. He said, the knowledge of God's father love is the first and simplest, but also the last and highest lesson in the School of Prayer. Did you come to class today? You want to learn how to pray? He's saying the knowledge of God's father love is the first and simplest, but also the last and highest lesson in the school of prayer. It is in the personal relation to the living God that prayer begins. It is in the knowledge of God's fatherliness that the power of prayer will be found to root and grow. In the infinite tenderness and pity and patience of the infinite father, in his loving readiness to hear and to help, the life of prayer has its joy. And so recognizing our sonship is huge. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. And you can access his holy presence anytime you want. You know, as I was thinking about how cool it is to think that we could be in the presence of God anytime we want, I was reminded of a very famous picture. I'm sure all of you have seen this picture before, um, but I wanted them to show it because it just, to me, was the picture. You remember this picture? John F. Kennedy sitting in the Oval Office and his little boy sitting there at his feet, playing around under his desk while the President of the United States was taking care of world business. And I just thought, you know what, that's a, a small picture, a very, very small picture of the God of the universe, right, who, who, is, who is taking care of business all over the world. And yet here we are, his child, kind of playing at his feet, and he gives us not only access to his presence, but he gives us his undivided attention as if we were the only person on this planet. Just a profound thought. Father, we just thank you for what is really unfathomable to us that, that we as sinful creatures can access the holy throne room of the God of the universe, which is way more special and significant than the Oval Office ever will be. But Lord, shame on us for not coming more often 
and taking you up on your invitation to come and and sit on your lap and to pour out our hearts to you and to bring our concerns and our needs before you, to make our requests before you, knowing that you're a good and a gracious and 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 a, a wonderful Father who loves us and and, and can't wait to spend time with us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone here who, who honestly doesn't know you in this personal way because they've never come to know Christ, Lord, that they would realize that they have to come to Christ first and to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and then and only then can they know you as their Father that you would work in their hearts. And I pray the rest of us would, would really take advantage of our, our sonship and our daughtership and our co-heirship with Christ. And that every time we come into your presence, that we would, we would, we would deliberately think about who you are and who we are in this father-child relationship. And it would just woo us into your presence as a father's love woos his child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.